All right, well, first of all, just by a show of hands, how many of you graduated, well, if you didn't, those of you who graduated college, how many of you uh, graduated with a BS, Bachelor of Science? That says a lot about you folks. Especially you, Cole. This really, now it all makes sense. I was hoping you'd raise your hand, actually. She's a BS. I mean, nothing to do with, yeah, nothing, yeah. Not full of, just graduated with. How about, uh, how many of you graduated with a BA? That was me, BA. Bruzek, BA or BS? BA, okay. BM, who graduated the BM? <laughs> hey, stop moving around. Come on now. I'm trying to teach. I can't, I can't do it with all you guys moving around. As one, of, as one of the kids said on, uh, on Tuesday in confirmation, I said, what's the story of the prodigal son? I said, what? I said he, he, he went out, and what kind of life did he live? And this, boy, this young guy says, the good life. <laughs> and liked it. <laughs> he, lived, he lived the good life. Every day is about sex and kissing girls and liking it. But he had just wait till the Cole kids are in eighth grade. I've already had one kid ask me if he could kiss a girl and like it, which I said, we need to talk more. After we give you permission, at least he asked. It doesn't mean he... Anyways, I would, just to get things started, um, I would at least uh, propose that you think about um, a, a, a huge distinction, at least since the Enlightenment, so the beginning of modernism, in education. Okay, the way education is done, primarily the way, and he ends his section on beauty by talking about how do you know truth, primarily the way that you come to know truth. You know, before Patrick Henry Reardon comes tomorrow, we should probably get some new markers. We got this big name guy coming. Are you coming? You're going to the good life. All right. All I want to, yeah, that's exactly right. I would never say such a thing. My wife. Yeah, yeah. So the way in which you come to know truth. So on the one hand, you have all of you BS folks. You've got the sciences. And on the other hand, you have the arts or the humanities, right? So since the time of the Enlightenment, or since the beginning of modernism, I would at least propose that there's been a distinction in the way in which people come to know truth. On the one hand, you've got the sciences, and on the other hand, you've got the arts. Now, how do you come to know truth in the sciences? Any of you science majors, actual science majors? Carol, how did you come to know truth in science class? How did you come to know that something was true, specifically objectively true? But how did you come to know that? <laughs> 
perfect. Yeah, exactly. In the sciences, you have specifically the scientific method. But most people would. Some people don't. But let, we're not going to play by the, by the exceptions. We're going to play by uh, those who are normal. So the scientific method, <laughs> I actually didn't even know I said that. But then when you all started laughing, I realized those of you who are normal. Church doesn't work by exceptions. Neither does Pastor Gainick. Scientific method, however, you know is repeated, right? So the scientific method is repeated multiple times, E-A-T-E-D, and therefore, you can come to know objective truth. Okay? So you have the scientific method, the scientific method is repeated, therefore, truth is objective. And it's objective because it's actually outside of the person who's seeking. So you and your biology class, or chemistry, I remember taking physics and I hated it. Um, but in your class, you do experiments, and it was actually not about the person seeking. It was about objective truth that could be proved outside of that person, right? It was not about Carol. It was about doing the right steps, doing the right method, repeating the method, and therefore the truth that you came up with could actually be said to be objective truth. Does that make sense? You're all wondering where we're going. I promise we'll get there. On the other hand, you have the arts. Now, how is truth conveyed in the arts? Someone just take a shot. That's the key. Yes, your place in the issue, and specifically in the arts, truth is passed on by tradition. And I don't mean here, I don't mean kind of tradition that was debated at the time of the Reformation, as in tradition versus scripture or tradition above scripture. What I mean is, People have seen things and experienced things, and they then, they then pass that on to other folks. And, and just, you know, as an aside, um, this notion of things being handed over subjectively is all over the scriptures, and it actually comes to a head in the words of institution. You remember the words of institution on the night in which he was betrayed. But the Greek word for betray is actually parodidomi, which means to pass on. It's tradition. He hands it down from generation to generation. So in the arts, truth is passed on by tradition. It's handed over from one generation to the next. Therefore, is it objective or subjective? It's subjective because it's actually caught up in a person. One family tells a story. He tells that story to his kids. His kids tell that story to other folks. Truth here is not objective. It can't be proven by a method. It's completely subjective. It actually matters who's involved in passing it on. So Carol, in your science class, it was not about you. It was about the method. In the arts, it is about you because you pass on the story. Therefore, truth is subjective. Okay? Therefore, truth is subjective. Now... In the sciences, all of this is based on propositions or propositional statements. And in the arts, all of this is based on relationships 
and community. I mean, take for instance, take for instance um, the way a poet describes a sunrise, or the way a poet describes an earthquake, or in N.T. Wright's case, the way you the way you watch and uh, and examine a tiger. Okay. In the sciences, if you were trying trying to describe the sunrise, you would say something like. We've repeated this method over and over, and we actually don't believe the sun rises. Uh, therefore, there's objective truth about the sunrise. In the humanities, you've got a poet who describes the sunrise, and actually, the truth that can be proven um, is not the full story. There's more to it that what can be, than what can be proven by the method. This is part of the reason why people don't read Galileo anymore, but they do still read Shakespeare. Just think about that. People don't read Galileo. I shouldn't say don't. They do. But rarely. But people still do read Shakespeare. So why is that? Why do people not read about the sciences and people do read about the humanities? Okay? So just begin to think. Can you see? You can't see. And there's a lot more here. I mean, this is, this whole side of the board is about discovery, it's about being active. Um, it's about problem solving, real honestly. This side is about revelation. It's about being passive. You're given to here. And it's about mystery. Okay? So that's education since the time of the Enlightenment. If you're a BS major, Jen, this left side of the board may be appealing to you. If you're, yes, exactly. Me too, to a certain extent, because it's A plus B equals C. Two plus two equals four, right? You can do it over and over again, and you come out with objective truth. If you were a BA major, is that you? The other side of the board is very appealing. My wife would hate this and love this. That's why she teaches language arts, right? It's passed on from generation to generation. It's all about the people who pass it on. It's wholly subjective. It's about relationships and community more than it's about propositional statements. Therefore, it's based on revelation, being passive, and mystery. But here's the point. This is not just education since the time of the Enlightenment. It's actually the way that the church passes on truth and has been since the time of the Enlightenment. Since the time of the Enlightenment, this is the way the church has sought to pass on truth. Take the catechism. It's all propositional statements. Right? You go out and memorize this and this and this, and you'll come out with the right answer. Or you hear people say, this was Calvin's point about the scriptures, if we all just use the same method for reading the scriptures, we can agree on everything. So you have people who write books and books and books on the 48 ways to read a text. And you say, if we just do this, we can have agreement. Or, in the case of apologetics, if you just memorize 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, you can prove objectively that Jesus rose from the dead. But here's the thing. This, in many respects, is dead. This side of the board. With the dawn of postmodernism, everything for the past 300 years, so since the 18th century, many folks would say has kind of been a waste or hasn't worked. 
But if you look at the other side of the board, Jenny, who's a postmodern, I think would find that very appealing. Dave, who's a postmodern, I find it very appealing. And like you, Jen, I love the left side of the board, right? I'm, I think I'm very logical and rational. And yet at the same time, what I'm drawn to is the right side of the board. I'm drawn to that. Not because, not because I, I want to operate that way. In fact, it rubs me the wrong way sometimes. I'm drawn to it because it's actually, it's actually bigger than me. It can't be proven. You can't see it. It's a bit like in, on the left side, you examine something. In the right side, you're caught up in it. Take, for instance, if you go to, have you ever seen The River Wild, Jen, the movie? Great movie. I actually kind of like it. I don't know why I like it. I don't like any of the actors or actresses, but I think it's a good movie. But they come to these raging rivers, and how are we going to make it here and there? If you're on the left side of the board, you say, we build a bridge and we'll cross the river. If you're on the right side of the board, Donna, you say, I'm on the river, and now I don't know what I'm going to do. You're caught up in what the river's doing on the right side. Okay? And that's the way postmoderns operate. It's not about proving via a method that something is true. It's about passing on what's come before you from generation to generation and making sure that it's bigger than you. So last week when Pastor Bruzik said to Holly Bourne, here's what I would say to your friend. I can show you beautiful things. And I think the example you gave is, or was, my child's baptism, or my child, or my husband, or going to church, or whatever. Those things cannot be objectively proven. You can't watch a baptism and say, objectively, that is beautiful. You can't watch the crucifixion and say objectively that is beautiful. You can't prove it by a method. And yet, the right side of the board, the way postmoderns operate, you can look at those events and say, there is more beauty than could ever be proven. One of the most beautiful things for me in <laughs> one of the most beautiful things for me was seeing, you know, 97 people, well, no more than that, almost 140 people process in on September 14th. That was utterly beautiful. But if you brought up the scientific method, you wouldn't be able to prove that it was objectively true. But that's beauty. And that's what postmoderns are drawn to. So then taking N.T. Wright's book on, or his section here on beauty, if you can begin to think on the right side of the board, it might make more sense. Okay? It might make more sense. Does that make sense at all? Or is everybody thoroughly confused right now? Yes? Well, no, I would never say the sciences are dead in general, but I, at least, I mean, we're speaking in terms of the church now. So in terms of the church, the ability to prove to someone that something is objectively true just doesn't work. Just doesn't work. And, you know, what was interesting for me is this class at River Forest, the very first week, I, I think I've told you this, I said to the students, what are some of the apologetical questions being asked today? Take a guess at what you, what do you think they said? These are all young folks, 20s, maybe a token 30-year-old. What do you think they said? What would you say? What are the questions being asked of Christians today by non-Christians? Say that again. Okay, how come the world's in such bad shape? I, that's actually a very postmodern question, I think. Yeah, that's a postmodern question. That's good. Could be good. Then, 
Yes, yes, which is why the vicar knows Greek. The omega symbol is so helpful here. James Smith, who's got a great book called Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? You should all read it. It's brilliant. He basically uses movies to talk about how, po how postmodernism is maybe not as bad as people think. He says the world has operated like this, specifically the theological world, like an omega. For years in the early church, we operated one way. And all of a sudden, with the dawn of the Enlightenment, we took a huge blip on the radar and operated a completely different way. And yet now, we're coming back to the way we've always operated, which is the way of the early church. So this may be pre-modern, and this may be modern, and this is then post-modern. So you're right. In the early church, people were asking questions about being hypocrites. That's not good. You should probably beat up all the boys. Potty break. Oh, I do that at home, too. I just ring the... Never mind. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> You see, this is the difference between perception, perception and reality. You, you, you perceived what I was saying, and that wasn't what I was saying at all. Anyways, I take your point, and I think you're exactly right. Since the time of the early church, those have been the questions asked. But I don't think those have been the questions asked for the past 300 years. These students, it was striking to me, because you all asked postmodern questions. Why is the church filled with hypocrites? Why is the world so wrong? Where can I be loved? Where can I find beauty? Where can I find community? These students said, the first, the first answer was, what are the 18 proofs for the resurrection? <laughs> That's exactly what I said, which is why I didn't get asked back. Think about it. The second, the second question was, are the scriptures inerrant? Okay? These, these, now, these are the questions they conjured up. Now, here's the thing. I had, a, I had a moment of revelation by the Holy Spirit as I was standing there. All of a sudden, I realized I could answer these questions and tell them why I'm going to do what I'm going to do in a modern way or a postmodern way. I could either say, here are A, B, C, D, E, F, and G of why we're going to do it my way and not your way, or I could love them into the normal rhythm of postmodern apologetics. So what did I do? I gave them A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. No, I didn't. I love them into the normal rhythm of postmodern apologetics. I didn't say, no, you're wrong. I said, boy, that's an interesting answer. Now, let's sit down and talk about that. And I had one student who sat right here, right in the front, and from the first day, he hated me. But about four weeks in, he came up after class and said, you never said that I was wrong. You just never said that I was right. And you showed me that the world is bigger than what I actually think. I kind of like the class now. Okay, so you could... You see how this all works? You can deal with people in a very modern way or a very postmodern way. But I do take your point. Yeah.
I would never say such a thing because we're on the radio. But I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm not drawing mm -hmm. to the Yeah, two very good questions. One, are people, is this kind of at a loss now because people are over here and then where does a guy like Paul Meyer who's been very faithful to the church and has given, uh, in many respects, a very good defense of the faith, where does he fit in? I still think they fit in. The, here's the difference. On this side of the board, you know, in the age of modernism, people said, give us the data and if we believe it, then show us the life. Okay? Give us the data and then show us the life, which is why... To become a Lutheran for the past 300 years, you had to just memorize the catechism. Give us the data, and then we'll suddenly tell you what our life looks like. But on this side of the board, people are not saying, give us the data and then show us the life. They're saying, the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites, and we're suffering out in the world. So show us, if you actually want us to be a part of your community, show us the life, and then give us the data. That's the only difference. Or as, as uh, Barack and John uh, McCain always say, that's the fundamental difference between this side of the board and that side of the board. Okay? It's a fundamental difference. So here's the point. A guy like Paul Meyer can still make a living at the Missouri Synod, just maybe not in the place he thought he was before. Before, he was the first line of defense. Now we bring people in and say, come see our community, and people say, wow, this is great. I see beauty and love and compassion and justice. Now tell me, tell me all the stories and remind me again, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? And Paul Meyer steps in and says, because the tomb's empty, and here's all the data showing that the tomb's empty. Isn't that great? But first and foremost, it's about a life, not about the data, which is why we always start the new member class, and the first thing I say is, <clears throat> we're not going to open up your head and pour a bunch of information in. It's not what it's about. Okay? Yeah. I think, that's a great question, actually. I think part of it is the way we got so off the map. We weren't off the map at the time. Um, the questions being asked of the church 300 years ago are not the questions being asked today. So 300 years ago, um, we had to give a specific answer to a specific question. I'm talking, spe I'm talking in the church now. I'm not talking in the world. I'm talking just in the church. I mean, even take, you know, let's just, I'll give you a more recent example. Take in the 70s, when the seminary split over the battle over the Bible. The defense or the retort of conservative Lutherans was to emphasize to an extreme the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. Right? The liberals said, those stories didn't really happen, and the conservatives said, yes, they did, yes, they did, yes, they did. Now, here's, here's the point. That was an answer needed at that time. But we've been stuck in a rut, at least in that rut, even to the present day. So our own preaching has been affected. People, um, people aren't asking that the scriptures are inerrant anymore. So why the first thing a Missouri Synod Lutheran says to other folks is the scriptures are inerrant and inspired, so you need to believe this, is beyond me. What people are looking for is to be caught up in a life, in a person specifically. Truth is subjective if you believe that truth is Jesus. Because Jesus is subjective. It's about a person in a life who says, come follow me. And as Matthew does, he just gets up and follows so that, I think that's part of the reason we got stuck in a rut 300 years ago. That doesn't mean that the answer at that time was wrong. It means 
there are other questions being asked. That's very specific. Oh, that's, that's good. It's my hang-up, too. I mean, that, that should be the first. Don't think. Um, and I don't know how I can't speak for other, for other Missouri Senate pastors. I can speak for these guys. Um, but, you know, for other guys, it may be a different thing. My, I, have my own, I have my own kind of Roman Catholic biases. And part of that is because, you know, I spent four years at a Catholic prep school where I got a better education than most anyone else I knew. And I respected, so here's, so here's the thing. I respected those people, I loved those people, I was entrusted to their care, and I, I saw the beauty in what they did. One of my fondest memories was, um, I had the Lord's Supper all screwed up when I was in high school. I mean, I, I was with all these Catholics who said it's the body and blood, and for me, I was like, body and blood, that's a Roman Catholic. It's not. Part of it was I was never catechized as a kid. And I remember a Catholic brother saying to me, who I still keep in touch with, he said, young Gainick, you got it all screwed up. He said, what we believe about the supper and what you believe about the supper are not as drastically different as you actually imagine them to be. Which is very true. No, this is, this is good. because No, 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 because I've got a good answer. I, I know if it's good, but I've got an answer. I actually, when I watch then, when I think about that Catholic brother who was so influential, and I, ima- I mean, he's getting older in years, and I imagine the day that he dies, one thing that Rome does is you always have a funeral mass, right? And, and going to that and not being able to commune there would, could be one of the most difficult things imaginable. Because I actually don't think the chasm is that great. It's the same thing with many other Lutherans. There are many faithful Lutherans in other Lutheran denominations who, uh, who, who would confess everything you would about, about the supper. And there are many Missouri Synod Lutherans who wouldn't confess what you would confess about the Supper. But I would say, first and foremost, our practice of the Holy Supper is not about dogma. This is what we believe and this is what we do. It's actually about a life. This is why St. Paul says, you can't bend your knee at one altar and then go to another. That's primarily not about dogma. It's about life. You're caught up in the life of this place and what this church confesses. And if you come over here and you're caught up in this life, you've been unfaithful to your spouse. So it's first and foremost about a life. What that church confesses, what that life confesses, is a different confession than what you confess, even though your friends may believe it. But as you know, it's not about what you believe. It's bigger than that. It's about what Jesus believes, which is expressed through the life of the congregation. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this on Sunday. I know you may not be here, but in Acts, when it says, when, uh, when St. Paul is on the road to Damascus, and Jesus speaks to him from heaven... In one verse it says, Paul was a persecutor of the church, and Jesus then says from heaven, why do you persecute me? Which means Jesus and the church are one and the same. Okay? They're caught up in the life of Jesus. So if you're not confessing what Jesus confesses, your life then is going down the wrong track. So first and foremost, it's not about dogma, it's about a life. And we don't want to ruin their life. Okay? If it was just about dogma, this would be very easy. Line up the data, show us A, B, and C, and if you believe it. That's, that's not what it is. It's bigger than that. It's more mysterious. That probably doesn't... We're getting close. Well, that's a step in the right direction. 
Uh, yeah, that's, well, that's part of the reason why um, you'll, see, you'll see in, uh, at least here on, uh, you know, during the week, there are many opportunities to get the data. Um, you know, Sunday morning Bible study primarily is not about, it is about the life insofar as we ask you to come, but it's not about the life in that we just say, you all come and we'll hang out for an hour. It's actually about giving you data. So here's the problem. If people leave, if people leave after they've been given the life and they don't have time to get the data, my guess is if you lined all those people up and said, what did you come to and what were you involved with? Most of them would say, I came to the new member class and never came to a Bible study again. The catechumen is about giving you the life. Every other Bible study is about giving you all the data so that you can go out and help people into the life. Even this right here, this is about giving you some data. This is what postmoderns think. This is what they feel. But see, the problem is most people think the data is just giving you 100 Bible verses. Part of giving you the data is to show you the life. That makes sense? I, don't, I, I, I didn't ask if you agreed or disagreed. I just said, does it make sense? Well, go ahead. Keep going. Yep. Completely agreed. These are, well, here's the thing. I completely agree. These are not broad strokes. Or, not everyone fits into just one category. We can't just say the entire, all of, all of the world is in this category now. That's not true. Because, come to the joy group. They're not postmoderns. It's not a knock on them. They're just not postmoderns. They want, they want this. What we're saying is, the people that are being drawn into the church, a majority are here. I mean, in the new member class, when 90% of the people are under the age of 30, and they say things like, you have the liturgy, so we want to come. And you say, well, what is the liturgy about? And they say, we have no idea, but we know it's big. I mean, that tells you something. Yes. Yeah. Agreed, which is why your husband teaches a Bible study on Sunday mornings. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of it. He's not talking about what postmoderns are interested in. He's saying, let's look at the text. Well, that is what I think. <laughs> he may be, I don't know. Al, Al may be talking about what postmoderns are all about. Who knows? I don't pin him as, as a, you know, in his, in his essence as a postmodern, but... Well, that's because I've been at church at 9 o'clock, but uh, you get three or four more pastors and I'll come to the 9 o'clock Bible study. Go ahead. You know, let's just, let, just, take, just take this for example. This is why, in, in some respects, Jesus is... Although he's a pre-modern, he looks post-modern. At the beginning of his ministry, so three years before his death, as he goes along to find people, and I know there are exceptions, and, but again, we don't play by exceptions, we play by what's normal. <laughs> as he walks along the road, he talks to people. When he calls people to follow him, I mean, really, there's not, there's not, a, there's not a huge difference between what we're trying to do in the new member class to what Jesus does with disciples along the way. When he walks along the road, he doesn't say to people, here's all the information. Now, if you believe it, come follow me. He just says, 
come and follow. Or as people say, sir, as he says, as people say in the scriptures, come and see. So you come, and then he's going to show you, which is why the three years with his apostles, those are really kind of three years of seminary. Those are three years when he's going to show them and he's going to give them. But he doesn't show them and give them first. He just says, come. Yeah. Right. Yep. Always. Right. Right. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly it. The people that are going to thrive in congregations nowadays are the people that have heard the data and know the data and love the data in years past and now in the age of postmodernism show themselves to be hospitable and charitable and merciful. Those are the people that will thrive. And those are the people that, frankly, are going to be leaders in congregations. You can't, we can't just have people who don't know anything be leaders. I mean, this is, this is part of the reason why, you know, one of kind of the, at least one aspect of being a leader here is you come to Bible study, you come to church, all of that. We, we want to make sure you know the data. But now it really is, do you know the data? Because up until two years ago, we were on this side of the, this side of the, the fence. Do you know the data? But now also, is your life a life of mercy? And I think I, you hit the nail on the head with Jesus with Jesus sitting and having table fellowship with people. Exactly. Exactly. And what's funny is we've had more people, as we ask people to help with the catechumenate, no one has a holdup. I mean, some people do. But there are more people have more of a holdup when asked to be a sponsor than asked to be a catechist. A catechist comes in and reads the text and gives you a little bit of data. A sponsor has you over for dinner. And for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a lot of people, that can be more difficult. So, who has a hand up over here? No? Jill? No! <laughs> it's like when a Bible study gets bad, when it starts going south, I always say to Abby, ask me a question I can answer. <laughs>
I think um, what we, at least what we've tried to do with, with the small groups so far, the new member class, I'm just get, this is you know, self-disclosure, this is what we've tried, and I don't know if it works, but what we've, we've done two things. One, we have tried to give them the data, because we give them to read on Saturday mornings in their groups the text for the following day. So in a sense, we're giving them the data. We're saying, heads up, here it comes, be ready to listen. And then the sermon, in many respects, is the sermon is some data, too. It's also drawing you to a life, but it's also some data. Jesus says this here, and he says this, this here. I'm trying to work over here. He says this here and this here, and he shows you how it all works together, right? But those texts also, at least in the time of, in, in the green season of the church, the texts are great because so many of them are about Jesus doing things and drawing people into a life. You don't have texts like, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks, because people will instantly say, how does that happen? Which is, that's the second stage here. These texts are, he called Matthew and Matthew followed. Or he saw the woman caught in adultery and he said, you're okay. Or he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Um, or he had a vineyard, you know? He had a vineyard and here's how it works. They tried to kill his son, but he said, don't worry about it, take the inheritance. That's not so much data, that's life stuff. Now, when we do this again, you know, in the spring... Whether or not the texts work out so well, I don't know, because it'll be a different season of the year. But yeah, telling people those stories, I think that is enough, because um, many people aren't ready for the data. They're not ready. I mean, they don't even know. They, they think you're speaking a different language. So this is why kind of the old evangelism way, you know, evangelism explosion, if you've ever done that years ago. I don't know if you did. I remember sitting on the shelf in my parents' house was the green book. It said evangelism explosion on the side. I didn't know what that was. But, um, you know, it's this old thing. You walk up to someone's door and say, if you die tonight, where are you going? And if they say, I don't know, you say, well, you know, Jesus says in John 12, it doesn't work. That's just not, you have to be normal, you know? I said the la- my parting words to this class at River Forest was, your greatest apologetic for the faith is to be a normal human being. People are drawn to that. People are drawn to that. Yeah. Right. I, and actually, yeah, that's a good question. And I, and, I, and I don't want to say I disagree, because I don't. I, I think people do ask those questions. I just wonder if people are asking those questions as quickly as we think. Is it really in the first, if you say, here's the story from someone, okay, so Kirby's friend who says, I woke up next to this guy, I didn't know. If Kirby would have said, um, well, you know, there was a woman in the Bible like that once. I wonder if their next question would be, is that a true story, and how do I know? I just wonder. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
How old was she? How old was she? So very young. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm not being serious. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't 80. She, she was, not that that's old. I remember that, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, people who are people who are actually in this category. The reason I ask the question is because they don't they don't usually ask that question. At least not early on. They they just don't. This doesn't mean that your friend's not in this category, but the, the majority of people don't ask that kind of question. Is she, did she go to church as a kid? Okay, so that, that's, that's, yep. I want to know who her pastor is. Kidding. My, okay, so, but this is a good point. She's already a Christian. Which means... In, in one form or another, you can debate whether or not it's to a great extent or to a little extent, she is already caught up in the life. That's a different deal than our catechumens, many of whom haven't ever been to church or have been to church when they were two, three, and four and never went back and have even... I mean, we've had some people say, I don't know if I was baptized. So that's a different deal. Someone who... And I, I know she might go twice a year, but someone who... Okay, well, see, that's different then. That's the difference. She is already here, and with those type of folks, you've got to give them the data, which is why, which is why to Beth's question, what about pe- that's why we encourage people to come to all these Bible studies. What did you say? Okay, good. That's perfect. Because she's already past point one. See, the, the, here's what people... I. I th- well, I'm saying that's not the first word said. The first word you speak to people. Yes. Yep. Completely. Completely. So, which means you've got to read your Bible, and you've got to know the text, and you've got to... All we're doing here, this is... I do think there's, there's a... I said this to Abby the other day. I think there's kind of a major misunderstanding about what's going on. Down here, we're trying to tell you what's going on in the world... So that you know, if I've got a friend who's never been to church, they're drawn to this. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's fair. No, that's fair, yeah. All over. Part of it is, part of it, well, two things. Part of it is there are people who are from the area who just say, for whatever reason, um, I've never been exposed to church, and they come, and they're kind of taken by it. I mean, people, especially on September 14th, when we had that big blowout service, people that were there are not involved, 
who kind of walked in off the street, they were the most taken by it. 25, 30, 25, 30. But the, other, but the other thing is, here's the other point. It doesn't mean that they're all unchurched. What it means is some of them have come from churches. As the woman said to me on the phone, we went to, well, I won't tell you the church because I don't want to bang on Yeah, Yeah, but, but, she, but what she said was, this was fascinating. Her critique was it was a convenient church, which means they gave us the bare minimum. And as she said, we never got caught up in the life of the congregation. We didn't learn any of the data. They just said, come on Sunday and be entertained, and that was it because it was so big they couldn't care for him. Now, here's the thing. We could say, she's churched, therefore we've got to give her all the data. Or we could say, she's churched, but not really. Which means, she was never really involved in the life there. She didn't know what that life looked like. So therefore, she actually is still at point one. The only distinction between what we're doing now and what was done 30 years ago is we're saying, what you used to say first, Jesus died for my sins or whatever, and I know that because the Bible says so, is not the first thing you say now. Now you say, come with me to church. And once they begin to come, then you say, did you know that that text from Sunday, Jesus actually said that? And here's how we know he said that. So all of you who think, you know, all the Bible verses I learned as a kid for salvation by grace alone, and all of the, that's all gone out the window. That's not it. Just save it. Save it for six months. And then you can use it. That's the only difference. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean this is not Yeah. Well that that's what's so fast. <laughs> so here's the question. You know that? So how come the church hasn't, and and again, I know these are broad strokes, because some of you would say, I've done that for 30 years, but a majority of the church has not done that. The church has just said, it's this way or that way, here's the data, if you want in, you're in. And all we're saying is, you actually got to love people first. This is like, I mean, it's like anything, it's like a family, you know? You can tell your kids all the rules, but unless you actually embody the way a family is supposed to live, they're never going to follow them. It'll last for a time. Right? Did you have something? Yes. Right. Yep. That is that's actually a very good example. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how I usually answer that question, and then we'll see if there's a difference between my answer and your answer. 
People call all the time. We just had a guy, just a guy called the other day, and unfortunately, I actually wanted to do his wedding, but there's a wedding scheduled for that day. I thought I could get two done in one day. Not going to happen. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, no flowers. We'll leave the runner out. Um, we often say to people, all the time they call, we want our kid baptized. Really, how did you find us? Well, you know, my grandmother was a Lutheran, and we live in Wheaton, so we figured we'd go to a Lutheran church. Okay? The natural inclination is to say, well, you've got to come and learn the data. I mean, at least hear what baptism is about. But what we often say is, we're happy to do your baptism, or we're happy to do your wedding, or we're happy, funerals are a bit different, but we're happy to do your funeral if you're willing to come under our pastoral care. Now, there's a distinction there. What, what you've said is, if you're willing to know the data, and what we've said is, if you're willing to join our life. Which just means, if you come to church on Sundays, if you give us a shot, if you come under our care, we're happy to do your baptism, we're happy to do your wedding. Do you get duped? Yeah, you get duped. I mean, out of my first nine weddings, probably two of them I haven't seen in months. You get duped. They tell you we're going to do it, and they don't. But the point is, you draw them to a life, not to a body of information. And that's, that's the difference between a kind of a postmodern response. Hey, just come under our care. And that doesn't mean we're not going to give them data, because part of coming under our care is come through the catechumenate. And most people say, okay, they want to get married enough, they're going to come through the catechumenate. But in the catechumenate, we not only draw them into the life, we draw them into the data. Yes. Yes. Well, most of them don't. Most of them don't uh, don't leave that early. I mean, if they've got to get married in six months, they're going to be in church for six months. But come, you know, the end of their honeymoon, you may not see them again. But here's the thing: at least you got a six-month crack at them. Same thing. Same thing. I mean, to them, you just say, we don't baptize kids into a vacuum. I mean, and, here, and here's the reality. Once I baptize your kid, on the last day, I've got to give account for that child. So I'm not going to baptize a child that I know I will never see again. That, and you hear different things. My father-in-law, this is one of the things we disagree on wholeheartedly. He says, you baptize anyone you can baptize, which is very much in the way of the gospel. I, I resonate with that. I, I love that. But because he's a professor at the seminary, he has no one under his care. I mean, there's no one. On the last day, the Lord's not going to say, you've had 6,000 people under your care, give an account for them. So it's very easy to say when you're not in the midst of the parish. But here, if I baptize someone, I've got to know what's going on. And it would be better for them if I could get a crack at them three years down the road than if I baptized them tomorrow and never saw them again. And that's, that's just being faithful. I mean... When the Lord says, Gainic, here's what you did, let's test it with fire, you know, that's either going to be a glorious day or not a very good day. Wow. You've like, everything I've gone through in my first two years, you hit it all in the head. My first seven couples who came in, Probably five of them were living together. 
It just happens. I mean, here's the thing. It's like they say on SportsCenter. You can't stop it. You can only hope to contain it. Okay? I mean, this is just reality. I mean, we could say we're not going to marry people who live together, but we wouldn't have any marriages. <laughs> You'd have very few. You'd have one a year. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Some pastors will say, well, they're living in sin. If you just marry them, that somehow ends the sin. So they'll say, you know, you, you and your you and your fiancé come in and say, oh, yeah, we've been living together. And, and some pastors will say, well, we're going to marry you right here. Go, go over and get a marriage license and come right back and we'll marry you. Because in their, in their mind, that ends the sin. Nothing ends the sin but absolution. So um, folks that come in and say, we're living together, here's the first thing we say. Boy, that's not the life that Jesus calls you to live. Which is very different than saying, here are the five Bible passages that say a husband, you know, man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. That's there, but that's not the first thing said. You say, boy, that's not, that's not the, you got that upside down. That's not the way the Lord works. He says you get married first, and then you live together. So, um, oftentimes then, if they have the means to do it, you say, you, you probably need to move out until you're married, or if they're young, they have no money, you know, we're living together because we can't afford our own places, you say, well, until your wedding day then, live as though you're not married. And as the scriptures say, give no appearance of evil. So you're living together, we just presume you're sleeping together. <laughs> Very rare that people who are engaged are living together and not sleeping together. So until then, don't sleep in the same bed. Don't give any appearance to your neighbors that you are sleeping in the same bed. Live as though you're not married. And surprisingly, many people are willing to do that. Some people say, you know, well, you know what they say. Some people say that, and you never see them again. And some people say, thank you very much. And some people say, can we go through confession and absolution right now? You hope for the second two. And every once in a while, you get the first one. It's about a life. It's not about dogma. You don't, win anyone, you don't get anyone in the church by just laying down the law. Jesus is not wrathful. He has mercy on those people. So, yeah. I don't know if this is in the book, but, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Do you have a beer? <laughs> All right. About as Lutheran as you can get, yeah, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I do. I know it very well.
Yes, right. Well, that is, that's, the, that's the great challenge in all of this, is how do, you, how do you tell people what's true and what's right without um, offending them, one, or two, being so brutally honest that they never talk to you again? Yeah. I wonder, you know, I, and I don't know if this, I don't know, but I wonder if you said to someone like that, I've got something better I can show you, which is, uh, you know, I've got a place where, um, I've got a place where you can really come and be dazzled. Because people are going to tell you things you've never heard before. And people are going to do things that are going to look very funny, and yet at the same time they're miraculous. I mean, all the people want is they just want to see the miraculous. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it's you've you've heard us say, I mean, people say people are Yeah. But you find what is she longing for? Yes, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Swing some incense. That'll dazzle them. <laughs> yeah. All right. One. Uh, anything else before we let you go in just a minute? I just want to read one thing to you before we... Okay, look at page 46. This probably sums up everything, and it's, it's quite brilliant here. Page 46, first full paragraph. And when the cynic reminds us that people fall off crags, get lost after sunset, and are drowned by waves and eaten by lions, when the cynic cautions that faces get old and lined and formed, and forms get pudgy and sick, then we Christians do not declare that it was all a mistake. We do not avail ourselves of Plato's safety hatch and say that the real world is not a thing of space, time, and matter, but another world into which we can escape. We say that the present world is the real one and that it's in bad shape but expecting to be repaired. We tell, in other words, the story we told in the first chapter, the story of a good creator longing to put the world back into the good order for which it was designed. We tell the story of a God who does the two things which, some of, some of the time at least, we know we all want and need a God who completes what he has begun, a God who comes to the rescue of those who seem lost and enslaved in a world the way it now is. The best line in there is, we say that the present world is the real one and that it's in bad shape, 
but expecting to be repaired. That's the story. And that draws people into a life. Okay? That's what it's all about. So come bring your friends and say, I can show you beautiful things. And if they say, your idea of beauty is different than mine, say, yes, it is. Come and see. That's the whole point of the very beginning, the arts and the sciences. Yeah. that things are being restored? Yeah. Both. As, um, yeah. Yeah, right. But remember at the eschaton, or eschatolo eschatological thinking, which is always a good way to think, the key to eschatological thinking is the now, not yet. So it is now, the great, the great line, have you seen the passion of the Christ? The best part of the movie. You know this part. I know, the best part of the movie. I mean, this, I, but this is, this is it, this sums it all up, and it's, it's, in, it's in the Gospels, is when Mary runs out to Jesus, and you remember Jesus grabs Mary, which is a reverse of all the icons you've ever seen. All the icons are Mary holding Jesus, the Theotokos, now it's Jesus holding Mary. If Mary's an image of the church, Jesus now holds the church. And he says, woman, behold, I make all things new. That's what it's all about. So even now, the Eucharist is the Lord making things new. Creation is being restored. Eden, the fall of Eden is being made right in the Eucharist. That's what it's all about. So which is why where we want to get people, all people, is to the Eucharist. There's nothing worse than having some of these new members come to the altar with their hands crossed. All you want to do is put the body and blood into them. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he would... Yeah. Yep. He would say you get a taste of it because it's happening, but it's still incomplete because the world is still broken. Exactly. Yeah, creation groans in eager expectation. Yeah, Donna, last word. Yes. Yep, right. Yeah, which is why at the Eucharist, you, part, you eat the flesh and blood of a crucified and arisen Jesus. You're, you're joined to whatever he is and whatever he does. And what he does now is he makes things new, and um, he waits in expectation of the day when all things will finally be, be made new, which is precisely the way that we live, because you and Jesus are one and the same, right? All right. Uh, next week, I won't be here. What is next week? But Bruzik will, so come... Also, uh, one last announcement. If you haven't signed up for tomorrow's Saturday seminar and you'd like to come, I'm telling you, this guy is kind of like a, a, an American N.T. Wright in many respects. He's an Orthodox priest but spans ecumenical lines. He's going to talk on the Christology of the Psalms, uh, the poetry of the Psalms, and kind of the Psalms as the prayer book for the Christian. So come if you can make it 9 to noon, sign up upstairs, uh, and we'll get it all teed up tomorrow. Okay? Yeah. 
When's the women's retreat? November 7th at the Palmer House, $75 a person, which is, that's pretty, that's pretty darn good. Uh, $75 a person, that's if you share a room, if you want your own room, you know, $150. Um, $75 a person at the Palmer House, go have some fun. They'll, they've got a brand new spa. We might even work something out with someone coming in to do that spa stuff for you. So uh, we think you probably need a little pastoral supervision. So don't you think? I could, I could go a massage. Deaconal supervision, that's right. All right, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.